Hello and welcome to the History and Theory podcast, a student-led project that aims to make historical theory easy and accessible. We are James, Michael, Carlos, Alex, and Julia. In each episode, we talk to a different historian about their theoretical background, the historical practice, and the significance of history within society. Make sure to visit our website, which you can find in the description. But for now, enjoy the episode. In this episode, we're heading to Platform 9 and 3 quarters. At the Humboldt Universität this summer semester, Annette Vorwinkel is giving a seminar entitled Teaching 20th Century History with Harry Potter. Almost every event in the Harry Potter saga has an equivalent in the history of the 20th century. The book's discussion of muggles and mudbloods reflects modern racism and anti-Semitism. The fight against the dark arts resembles resistance movements against fascist and totalitarian dictatorships. And the Ministry of Magic is organised according to principles of bureaucratic authority. The books deal with topics such as sports and esoterics, ask questions about the habitus, and analyse our relationship to animals, to name just a few aspects of J.K. Rowling's work. In her seminar, Vorwinkel uses these novels, familiar to most participants, as entry points for tougher theoretical texts, such as Hannah Arendt's Ideology and Terror, Max Weber's Bureaucratism, or Francis Fukuyama's The End of History. Vorwinkel herself works at the Leibniz Center for Contemporary Historical Research in Potsdam and has written introductions to Arendt's work, as well as most recently, a study of the impact of professional photographers and picture editors on the production of political photography in the 20th century. Today we'll be discussing with her the seminar, how Hannah Arendt's ideas of totalitarianism and anti-Semitism can be understood in conjunction with Harry Potter, and how these issues are still relevant today. So, Annette Fowickel, thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us today. Um, we thought we'd start off with the, the most important questions when talking about Harry Potter. So, which house are you in? <laughs> um, I'm a Ravenclaw. <laughs> Surprise! Of course. <laughs> And what, uh, what's your Patronus? Uh, it's the Vulture. The Vulture, okay, interesting. Mich- Michelle, what yeah. was yours again? Was it an otter? Uh, yeah, I would say an otter, definitely. Yeah, definitely an otter. Okay. I, th- I think I thought mine might have been a bear. <laughs> maybe, a, maybe a honey bear or maybe a teddy bear. Uh, I actually, I cheated once uh, because I, I, I was, uh, I think a first try, uh, I had a swan and I hate swans. Oh, so <laughs> I, I deleted my account, did it all over, and then uh, I was very happy with the vulture. <laughs> why, why, why do you hate swans? Hard to say. I think I, when I was a child, I was beaten up by a swan once. Uh, a swan uh, that was protecting uh, the uh, the little ones. Ah, okay. Uh, and really beat, beat me over the head. And aside from that, uh, I, I don't know, just too, too much mannerism in the... <laughs> They, are, they they can be scary creatures. They're, they're actually my mum's favourite animal, though. Ah, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I always buy her little swan stuff. Anyway, not relevant. Um, anyway. Which which book is your is your favourite? Um, part three, uh, The Prisoner from Azkaban. Okay. Uh, I like very much. And also, uh, unlike most other people, I really like uh, volume five, The Earl of the Phoenix. That's actually my favourite as well. I think oh, really? I, I think the oh, okay. fifth one is you know it's the point where it kind of starts to become very adult and Dumbledore's big explanation near the end kind of 
you know, brings everything together and you really understand finally <laughs> this world. Exactly. And it's it's very gloomy, but uh, it's also a bit deeper, I think, than like, for example, for uh, volume four, uh, which is full of action and uh, stuff. But uh, but I like uh, the, the Order of the Phoenix more. And also, uh, it's it's the part in which I re was really haunted uh, finally by the question whether Snape is a good or a bad one. I, I, I did not know until the very end, because my, my, my children, who actually got me to read Harry Potter uh, after I lost a bet, uh, they, they really, they did not tell me. They, they were just giving me hints this way or the other way, and uh, they got me totally confused, and I really started spinning the reading process because I was so curious what, uh, what the outcome would be. Oh, so, so we have your children to thank for this interview. Absolutely. I refused uh, to read any Harry Potter, arguing that I don't like fantasy until I think it was uh, sometime in late summer or fall 2011. And then I lost this bet. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, they, they got me to, pr uh, to promise that if I lose, I will read the first volume because they knew uh, if they asked me to, to read all seven volumes, I would, uh, I would be out. So I lost this bit. I uh, I read the first volume and then then I went on. And they couldn't stop. And I read the re the, the entire rest in in four weeks. Oh wow, wow! That's a Harry Harry Potter super fan. So they've they, we also yeah. So they've they've actually changed your your professional career somewhat now that you're giving this this seminar on on Harry Potter this semester. Yes, they did. So who is your favorite character then? Is it is it Snape due to the the his, the the backstory? Uh no. Uh, my favorite character, aside from the three, of course, the the most important uh, that everybody likes. Uh, I I have a uh, a special uh, fable for uh, Neville Longbottom. Oh yeah, okay. He's a bit of a fan favorite from the from the films, right? Uh, no, actually, more from the books because he's so. I mean, he's he's in a way he's always a bit of an outsider and a bit clumsy and a bit slow. But uh, he has such a big heart, and then he he turns out to be so brave in the end. Uh, I found that very very nice. <laughs> yeah, he was nicely written towards the end. I quite I quite like mm -hmm. uh, I like how how what she did with Dumbledore because at the beginning he's almost this infallible character who's so perfect in in Harry's eyes and then you find out really how complex he is in the sixth and seventh books and I really really liked that character development yeah what about you Michelle um I'd probably say Sirius Black probably Sirius Black for favorite character also because it's just uh you know you've been in jail and then he got out and then that's a bit yeah it's a bit <laughs> it's a bit cooler than everybody else but <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but um yeah but that's probably my favorite character but yeah i mean yeah there's um it, it's definitely a hard pick from from so many uh so fascinating ones for sure this is a now we've got the most important questions out of the way um we want to talk a little bit about the seminar um, so what 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 are we now are we th are we three weeks in now or two weeks? Um, we just wanted to first ask kind of how you're finding it and how you've structured the readings in conjunction with Harry Potter. And also we we were quite interested to know whether you have put people into houses um, within the seminar and whether this is kind of whether you've kind of found any problems with this. Well, that's actually a fun idea. Um... No, I, I've not sorted them into houses. Uh, and frankly, uh, I'm not really going 
too much into the details of the of the Potter books uh, in the seminar. It's uh, the idea was actually to to well as uh, as professional educators usually uh, used to say, uh, I wanted to pick them up where they are. Um, it's not that we're really reading Harry Potter in the seminar. It's rather that the the syllabus contain uh, contains almost exclusively texts um, that are scientific or essayistic texts like uh, written by uh, Foucault or Bourdieu or Max Weber or whatever. Uh, and there is always a connection to some sort of subject that, that comes from the, from the Potter books. Like, for example, you have the, uh, the Ministry of, uh, of which... Sorry, I, I sometimes... I, I read most of the books in German and only two volumes in English, so sometimes I'm lacking vocabulary. Uh, the Ministry of Magic. The Ministry of Magic, exactly. So the Ministry of Magic, of course, calls for uh, reading reading Max Weber on bureaucratic uh, on, on bureaucracy or bureaucratic states. Um, and so far, uh, we're only uh, it, this is now the third week of the seminar, so we've had two sessions so far. Uh, and in the first, uh, I uh, we read uh, Pierre Bourdieu, Define Unterschiede. Um, and I got them to describe the different uh, families uh, that are uh, the, 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 that are in in the uh, in the books. Like for example, the Weasley family always some sort of some bit of bit chaotic, um, very open, very liberal. Uh, yeah, they always have always have guests over. Uh, they have parties and so forth. Then we have the. Um, the Malfoy family, which is probably comparable a bit uh, uh, to a noble, to the nobility, uh, uh, rather strict, rather conservative, uh, very exclusive. Uh, we have the uh, the Grangers. Both parents are dentists and muggles. <laughs> also very liberal. Take their daughter for skiing and so forth. And I thought this is a very good example for explaining what uh, what Bourdieu's uh, idea of the habitus uh, is all about and that worked pretty well actually mm. in, the, in the first session yeah okay so yeah using the seminar as an entry point into more more difficult theories which is yeah what we um <laughs> what we kind of so, you, so you, you've touched on it a little bit but we wanted to we wanted to ask maybe a little bit more how why harry potter is a kind of a good starting point for understanding these different theories well if you look at the books, they are not history books, they're fantasy books, but they're actually full of uh, uh, some sort of uh, hints at uh, the 20th, history of the 20th century. I think the most obvious one is uh, is the kind of the idea that you have muggles, uh, you have uh, witches and sorcerers, and you have mudbloods who are something in between. Uh, you have this idea that is very strong in any theory of racism or anti-Semitism, that there are different uh, kinds of human beings, uh, and some of them are better than others, uh, and the pure bloods are better than the than the mud bloods, uh, for that matter. Uh, I think this is it's pretty obvious not to see a parallel in in the racism and anti-Semitism of the anti-Semitism of the twentieth century. Uh, but this is not the only point. It's also kind of the uh, the Death Eaters. You could. I thought I always thought of the the SR troops, or of the fascist stormtroops in in Italy or in, uh, all over Europe that you had in the first half of the twentieth century, uh, pretty close parallel to the to the Death Eaters. Uh, 
Um, another point would be um, media. Uh, something most people don't think of uh, in the first place, but uh, we have this figure of uh, Rita Kimcorn uh, who starts showing up, I think, in volume four. She represents the press and she always writes nasty things about uh, Harry and his friends. Uh, so you have uh, Boulevard Press in, in there, but you also have uh, state-run press like the, uh, the the Daily Prophet. Is it Daily Prophet in English? It's the, the Tagesprophet in the German uh, version, yeah. So there are various subjects that, that pop up here and there uh, that really give you a lot of... Uh, input uh, when it comes to analyzing the 20th century. Sure. And that must have been done, I mean, on purpose by, by Rowling. And it's, it is interesting, actually, that the media has such a bad reputation in mm -hmm. Harry Potter that it kind of, this, what, what's her name? Is it, is it Rita Screever has kind of no redeeming, oh. no mm -hmm. redeeming features. Is that, is that the name of the journalist? I can't remember her name. Well, in the German version, it's uh, Rita Kimkorn, but uh, ah, okay, probably, okay. I, I don't know what what she is in the English. I don't recall because it's uh, I don't read any of the, those, and I think in English. Sure. Yeah, it's something that has puzzled me a lot. Why why the media is uh, uh, is in bad, such bad shape in uh, uh, in the in the story? Uh, there is. Do you have any, Do you have any theories? Um, well, one would of course think uh, of the the British. Boulevard Press, uh, the which is probably even uh, worse than than the German or French. Um, maybe that is one reason. And then uh, what I just remember just now is that actually you do have uh, critical journalists too. Uh, Luna Lovegood's father uh, used to run a paper. I don't recall the the title of the paper right now, but. Uh, there is a critical uh, newspaper as well, but uh, but the the, the dominant uh, person in uh, in that part is I think is uh, is Rita Kimcorn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. That becomes almost an alternative news source, doesn't it? Luna Lovegood's father's. Yeah, I remember that. So moving on from the media, what we thought we might focus on for some of the interview would be Hannah Arendt and the origins of totalitarianism. Um, we found that like pr pretty relevant to the Harry Potter series, and we're wondering sort of where where we can find the forms of totalitarianism that Arendt analyzes in the Harry Potter books, and how Harry Potter can then help us understand these different forms of totalitarianism. Well, maybe just to recall for those who have not the entire Hannah Arendt, <clears throat> the the book the 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 central book is uh, uh, that is relevant here is. Uh, the Origins of Totalitarianism, written 19, uh, or first published uh, in 1951, uh, which consists of three parts. The first part uh, uh, is about anti-Semitism, uh, especially in, in, actually more in the 19th century than in the 20th century. The second part is on uh, imperialism, uh, and the third part is entitled, uh, uh, what's it in English? Well, in uh, in German, it's totale Herrschaft. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, it's probably totalitarianism in uh, in English. I I just uh, yeah, don't... something like complete um, mastery, literally translated. Michelle, maybe you know what it was translated yeah. to into English. I think it's uh, total dominion, isn't ah, it? Okay, isn't it total sure. dominion? 
yeah, totalitarian rule, maybe. I, I, mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the, the third part is on totalitarianism, in, uh, in which she explains uh, uh, what she thinks uh, really is the, the, the core of, uh, uh, of national socialism and Stalinism, for that matter. So the second part is, is kind of irrelevant here. It, it's not, Harry Potter is not about imperialism. Uh, it's the, the, the entire plot uh, is in, in Britain and uh, they, nobody tries to conquer the world or other countries or what, whatever. So, uh, but the first part and the third part uh, are pretty interesting in this context. The first part, of course, because it's about anti-Semitism. Uh, interestingly, I don't think that, that Arendt's theory uh, really helps us understand Harry Potter uh, because uh, what, uh, what distinguishes Arendt's theory of anti-Semitism is that she thinks it is basically root anti-Semitism is a response uh, or built on the relations between Jews and Gentiles uh, in the pre-modern world uh, and in the 19th century. Uh, very much unlike Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, who we also read in the, in the seminar, who thinks that uh, the Jews are always the scapegoats. Um, but what Arendt says is that uh, sometime uh, into the 20th century, uh, uh, the relations between Jews uh, and non-Jews are, do not matter anymore. Is, and that is what, when uh, kind of biological racism comes up. Uh, Whenever you, you, you define uh, uh, Jews as, uh, as a minority uh, that you can't escape because you're born into it, uh, it starts to become uh, a truly racist theory and truly racist politics. Uh, and I, maybe this, this is where actually the, the, it gets closest to, to what the relation between the muggles and, and the mudbloods and the, the purebloods is in, uh, in Harry Potter. Mm. It's interesting because um, we were wondering whether these ideas of anti-Semitism are still applicable today because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Aaron sees the, the Jewish, people, Jewish people as having had a role in the Holocaust and we kind of um, wondered what the relevance of that would be to Harry Potter, how that can be kind of seen through the lens of, of Harry Potter. Well, I think most of the research that we have on, uh, on, on Jews in, the, in times of national socialism defines them as victims uh, and defines them as victims that have nothing to do with whatever the Nazis did to them. Uh, and I guess in terms of ideology, this is this is still entirely true. Uh, but at the same time, we do have some more recent research that that uh, points to the fact that, of course, the Jews uh, in 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 the Nazi period were were subjects. They were actors. They I mean they they kind of they were persons that, who who were not just victims, but but part of uh, of the story and the history. So I guess it's actually the most recent development is uh, uh, to not just see them as passive, uh, uh, as the passive part of of history. So you don't you don't see this as something that Hannah Arendt also believed that they that they played played some sort of a role. Well, she makes this this point strong for the nineteenth century. Uh, Arendt insists that that uh, and especially in the 18th and 19th centuries, 
Jews were many Jews. I mean, some of the rich, not not all Jews were bankers, but some of uh, some rich Jews were bankers, who did not give loans to ordinary people, but usually to to the European nobility and to European states, uh, which led to uh, large parts of the of the non-Jewish pop, uh, population to identify with those people, the Jews, with those people who they lent money to. Uh, which is probably true. Uh, well, it's based on on very uh, uh, good kind of um, papers by, like for example, the historian Selma Stern uh, and uh, Salo Baron, uh, and she points to this kind of research in order to make to to, to strengthen her own point that anti-Semitism is not totally of the, of the blue, the Jews are not scapegoats, uh, the Gentiles are reacting to something that is kind of rooted in the, in the relations between Jews and Gentiles, especially in the financial sector. But then, she says, that in the 20th century, uh, uh, things changed, but the Jews are still identified with the states. Uh, and whenever some, some party or some part of the population gets in trouble with the states, they take it out on the Jews. Okay, right. So that's kind of kind of a bit of a hangover from the the nineteenth century. Even though the actual the actual reality of of the Jewish people's situation has changed quite a lot by that time. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, sort of on a kind of semi related topic, Michelle and I were thinking about sort of the current political climate um, and anti immigration sentiment that's becoming more widespread in Europe, as well as nationalist and even authoritarian regimes. And we were kind of wondering simultaneously whether Arendt offers an insight into understanding why these developments have taken place. And at the same time, whether there's then a limit to the Harry Potter comparison when we think about these more contemporary issues. Well, the Harry Potter comparisons are actually always limited. Uh, I think it's... There, there's hardly anything that, that we could really say is tells us something about the present. It's just rather kind of an, an exercise in, in thinking through different different kinds of, uh, uh, theories, uh, and trying to apply them to whatever happens in the more recent past. I would not overstretch that in any case. Uh, it's not that I'm saying that uh, that Harry Potter really helps us understand the twentieth century. I think the 20th century helps us understand Harry Potter uh, rather than vice versa. Uh, also, there is, as far as I remember, there is no migration does not matter in the in the Harry Potter uh, books, as far as I remember. There is, in, in part four, you have this, uh, this tri-magic uh, uh, competition uh, in which you have teams from France and from Romania, but they are not immigrants. They are guests, and it's kind of kind of some sort of Harry Potter Olympics that they're taking out, uh, and actually more based on the idea of uh, Völkerverständigung or whatever. Like the coming together of, of peoples. <laughs> so I guess uh, migration is one of the phenomena of the 20th century that that we you can't really relate closely to to the Potter stories uh, uh, at least not as close as uh, uh, as uh, theories of racism and anti-semitism okay and then and then 
Aaron's theories offering an an insight into sort of contemporary issues? Do you, do you find her analyses still helpful helpful today, or would you say that they're they're more, much much more helpful in understanding twentieth century history specifically? Well, I read an article uh, a few days after the Trump election uh, in two thousand and sixteen. Uh, uh, hinting to the to, to the fa- fact that uh, uh, sixteen times more copies of uh, Aaron's Origins of Totalitarianism were sold after the Trump uh, in a few months after the Trump election uh, than uh, in the entire be- uh, year before, uh, and I think this this shows that people were trying to somehow understand what was going on. You have this. This this president who who lies who who does not care about facts, uh, who kind of well I don't have you tell you about about Donald Trump we all know what, what he's like, uh, but people try to understand why people would elect such a person, uh, and they really try to to go back to to Hannah Arendt, uh, uh, and figuring out how this. Uh, uh, how it works that uh, what she calls cumulative radicalization, I think. How does that work? That means that, of course, well, the Nazis were elected in 1933, but of course the change was not overnight. Um, we, we all know today that they, were, they had some strict anti-Semitic uh, measures uh, immediately after, after the, uh, the election, but the Nuremberg uh, laws, for example... Uh, 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 prohibiting uh, marriages between Jews and non-Jews are uh, were uh, are from nineteen thirty eight. So it it took them five years to kind of uh, uh, get to, to I mean to to radicalize the system uh, in such a way that people would not drop out at the start because they found it too radical. They do it step by step. Uh, and people, of course, uh, and, and I know from friends in uh, in the U.S. that I talked to that uh, that this was exactly what they were afraid of uh, shortly after the election. That this would exactly be what what would happen. Well, things have proven to be somewhat different, fortunately. Uh, but of course, I think there was uh, there was a big uh, urge to 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 understand what what's what's actually going on here. Absolutely. And sort of keeping briefly on the totalitarian regime um, kind of debate, but bringing it maybe a little bit more back to Harry Potter, there's famously Christopher Hitchens noted the parallels between totalitarian regimes and um, kind of and religious ideas and like his argument, and it's been made by others as well, is that all totalitarian regimes have kind of a religious... Um, uh, kind of bent to them, even if it's secular, in the case of Stalinism, for example. Um, and we were wondering if there's a religious dimension kind of to the political themes in the Harry Potter novels and whether the forms of totalitarianism that Arendt can help us understand in Harry Potter, if there is some religious aspect to them, which which you could identify. Well, frankly, I have not identified any any religious elements uh, in Harry Potter so far, uh, and it's uh, it's also that I I don't have any text in the syllabus uh, uh, drawing this 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 parallel. Um, 
what I found is rather that that you have something like like secret societies, which we might somehow compare maybe to to religious uh, movements, like for example the the uh, Dumbledore's army, uh, or whatever. But this is more like that kind of a a, a, uh, a group of a resistance movement or or whatever. Uh, religion, in in my view, does not really pay play. Uh, much into it maybe uh, tell me correct me if i'm wrong <laughs> maybe i missed something here but uh no no um, i mean I, I, this is just um again based on kind of ideas from from other scholars who have claimed that due to things like the cult of personality the cult of personality and um the deification of leaders such as stalin or pol pot for example or yeah, and and many others that actually all of these totalitarian regimes look kind of the, the look kind of religious and are maybe yeah have this kind of religious um ah oh, can't can't think of the word but this religious kind of essence to them um, in the same sense mm-hmm. of for example in monotheistic in monotheism in Christianity there is obviously this worship of God and God is this overall ruler who makes all the decisions and etc. So that was where mm-hmm. where I was kind of getting mm-hmm. at with with that question. Well, I do see uh, that there is a kind of a personal cult uh, uh, around various persons, uh, of course, around uh, Voldemort and part of the Death Eaters, uh, but also well. Uh, in I think in volume two there is this this teacher this professor in Hogwarts called Gilderoy Lockhart, uh, who gives the the pupils a list of I don't know seven or eight books, uh, that they should read in order to prepare for the classes, uh, and seven are written by himself. So he he's trying to establish himself as a professor whom the 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 the, the students have to worship. Uh, of course he fails, but. Uh, uh yeah but he tries and then of course in a, in a certain sense you could also say that there is a kind of kind of cult around uh, dumbledore uh for for the better part of the of the story well in the, in the end as as you mentioned in the very beginning uh he turns out to be uh kind of more human uh than we used to think in the very beginning because he also has this he he made mistakes. It turns out that he 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 did wrong before he became a professor and so forth. I mean, all the story about his sister and his brother. Um, but there, yeah, uh, I guess uh, there are strong elements of of personal cult in the in the stories. But to my well, I would not call them religious. No, okay, because there, there there have been some analyses of the books, like moving away from totalitarianism that um have kind of showed this grand, almost divine battle between good and evil and uh, how that kind of has some religious themes. But I do, th- I do think towards the end of the series that kind of falls apart a bit as the the divide between good and evil becomes blurrier and there are grey char- characters or characters who had darker pasts and stuff like that, so yeah. Well, that is, that, that is true. Maybe there is, an, there is kind of a... Uh an element of redemption because uh it's like 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 Christ returning uh in the very end because this story does have an end uh and not just the story has an end also the, the history in 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 the in the Potter books has an end because uh 
uh, evil is defeated and then uh, they live happily ever after um uh but i well the text that i that i chose uh to uh in this context is uh, francis fukuyama the end of history and the last man which is kind of a secular version of the of the christian story of uh of redemption and i would rather compare this uh, uh to the end of the cold war uh like the, the, the good against evil of course in quotation marks good against evil but uh you could also kind of uh, compare this to the fight between communism and uh, and liberal democracies or whatever. Um, of course, given always that uh, that uh, I would never say that communism was evil uh, in in the strict sense. So we just had had a competition between uh, two kind of kind of systems that ended with the defeat of one and the victory of the other, mm. uh, at least in hindsight. And I think that segues quite nicely into a question we were thinking about on the political context of the books, or perhaps the political context just before they were written, because we, we read a piece by Stephen Dietz, who also held a seminar on using Harry Potter to understand these types of theories. And we were wondering, in your opinion, what the, how the, the political context of Harry Potter um, influenced kind of these 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 political themes that were that were represented in the novels and how this changed over their, I believe, decade of publication. I think it's 97 to 2007 they were written and whether there's a noticeable change in the themes and kind of whether in your seminar you can, you can see that, that different books are maybe more useful for different earlier theories, if that makes sense. Mm, hard to say. Well, when I think about the, well, to my knowledge, Joanne K. Rowling uh, ha had the entire plan for, for all seven volumes already uh, lined out when she started to write the first volume. So the, the, the time when she conceived the entire uh, uh, series was probably in the some early and mid-90s, uh, which... I would say it's it's kind of the aftermath of the the Thatcher era in in Great Britain, with a kind of uh, privatization of uh, of the economy, with the decline of the kind of a social welfare state, uh, and so forth. So, well, it is probably possible to 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 draw some kind of parallel here, but this is actually I think this is too far into the realm of interpretation in a way that I'm trying to avoid. Um, in general, I'm trying to avoid reading anything into the books that is not obviously there. So you, you, just kind of bouncing off what you said, you're using the Harry Potter books more of a, as a springboard into these more kind of deeper theories of, um, of the kind of political world of the 20th century because the Harry Potters only really offer kind of a simplification of, of what happened. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, a springboard is, is a good word. In, in German, I would probably say an, an Aufhänger. Mm -hmm. uh, the procedure was actually uh, that I read the entire seven volumes once more last fall. And whenever I, I came across a passage that seemed to have some sort of re resemblance in history or in, in the real world, I took down the notes 
then I, 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 uh, I uh, kind of gave them keywords to the passages, like for example, bureaucracy or uh, humans and animals or uh, magic or whatever. Uh, and then, according to the keywords, I try to find uh, uh, historical or sociological texts or uh, from cultural sciences that would match the keywords. And this is how I got my syllabus. So uh, uh, it's not that, that I'm trying to interpret Harry Potter. It's rather that I, I, I kind of mm, build up this, this kind of system of references and perils and, uh, and then... Kind of, I collected my own ideas, uh, and that's how I got to, uh, yeah, to get. That's how I, the the syllabus turned out in the end. Mm. That's quite an interesting, quite a, sort of relatively experimental way to to find your the syllabus for the seminar, right? Mm-hmm. The last question we wanted to ask about kind of popular culture, um, which Michelle has just edited. I'm not sure I totally understand what he means. We did wonder why popular culture overall is a it, like why you think it's a it's a good way to kind of to be the springboard or to offer some kind of understanding of these more deeper theoretical texts and what the limits are of this approach. Um, but Michelle, maybe maybe you want to rephrase it how you think. Uh, sure, because you said in the very beginning that um, you wanted to pick the students uh, up where, sort of where they were or maybe also where they are. Um, how um, Maybe how does this how does this work? Because you said in the beginning that this is actually uh, working quite well for some theories, um, and uh, do you think that this is a viable approach generally to convince uh, people to read more Bourdieu and more Arendt? I have a feeling, having taught only two weeks into the semester, uh, that it is in fact a lot more fun to read Bourdieu. Uh, when it resembles something that you really like. Uh, there is kind of... Uh, uh, some of my students are, are almost enthusiastic about reading this, these texts because uh, uh, the motivation is different now. Uh, it helps them understand something that they have read just for fun. I, I bet n- none of my students read Harry Potter uh, uh, for the, uh, for the historical or scientific surplus that it is in it, it's just that it's a fun read. But it it helps you uh, understand. Um, it's not only that 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 these these complicated texts help help you understand Harry Potter. It's also that Harry Potter helps you understand these complicated texts. Like for example, the the, the example that I had first is uh, Pierre Bourdieu. Uh, you read it with a f- completely different view. Uh, uh, if you have Harry Potter in the back of your mind. And I'm quite sure that it was, this will be the same for, for Max Weber uh, uh, on bureaucratic uh, uh, rule, uh, which is a rather dry text, but if it has some sort of, if it makes sense uh, in a way that is, uh, that is linked to your own, to what is fun, I, I'm quite sure that it will be easier to understand. Mm. What do you What do you see those the as the the limits of this approach on the other side? Well, the limits are obvious. That uh, that if it turns out that my students read 
the entire Harry Potter once more, but not the text that are in the syllabus, then of course it fails. <laughs> uh, uh, and that's why the, the, the abstract for the seminar already threatened that we would read uh, Hannah Arendt and Max Weber and, uh, and Fukuyama. Uh, so I, I, I try to kind of keep all those who are not willing to read uh, exhausting texts from the seminar. Nevertheless, it's, uh, it is the, the seminar is so full that I had to split the group in two. And so I'm teaching now uh, twice in a row every Wednesday afternoon. Okay, wow. Because you can't possibly teach teach 60 students uh, in in a Zoom conference. Of course. Well, it's great that it's had that it's been so popular there. No, though. That's fantastic. Um yes, I was a bit overwhelmed uh by the sheer uh number of of students who who enrolled, but since I did not want to turn anybody down and I know that it's sometimes hard to get into the master seminars because uh yeah, especially when when you have such a popular subject that uh, that I offered just Let's, let's do it twice. Now I have one group that is 35 or 40, and then there's another group of uh, 15 to 20 students. Uh, so they, they can choose uh, whether they want to, to join the class at two or at four, but it works. Things are different this, this term anyway, because we all have to start teaching uh, uh, online, and it's kind of pretty much of a challenge anyway. But so far, it has turned out to work well. Good. Yeah, these are crazy times, and which leads us nicely into our last question, which was we were wondering um, how you think that the Ministry of Magic would be dealing with the current coronavirus pandemic. <laughs> we, we kind of saw Cornelius Fudge as turning into this Victor Orban authoritarian type. Well, uh, of course, they would probably uh, uh, enforce a total shutdown. They would probably start uh, supervising uh, whoever is... Uh, uh, meeting more than one or two persons or whatever it's it's kind of it's, it's of course it's kind of the, the blueprint of a of an of a uh, authoritarian or in the end maybe even totalitarian state although i would say a rather authoritarian uh, of course probably uh, dolores umbridge would sneak around and denounce people celebrating corona parties uh, uh, i'm not so sure there are corona parties at all but uh, she would probably uh, uh, take this as an uh, uh, as an excuse for for uh, punishing whoever is doing things that are fun. Of course, uh, they'd definitely be sending the dementors in to patrol the streets. Yes, most probably. Great, thank you very very much for talking to us. You're welcome. And uh, I hope you stay. I hope you stay safe and healthy in these bizarre times. Yeah, please stay healthy too, and uh, and go on with your project. It's a it's a very lovely project that you're having there.